Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk, and today uh, we're bringing on a guest that I've been looking forward to the last couple of months, uh, Pete Koch. Pete is an executive fitness coach, producer, actor. Uh, you would know him famously from the iconic Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood, where he portrayed Swede. Uh, he's also a retired NFL defensive lineman, um, and one of those people where if you have the chance to follow him on social media, Instagram particularly, the life advice, the, whether it's fitness and health and this idea of pro- prolonging your life, um, he is a awesome follow. And uh, again, Pete, thanks for being out here. Hey, John, my pleasure. I appreciate that introduction. Very nice to meet you. And so to kind of get into this, and I, and I hate dating these episodes um, for the sheer fact that I think there's value in going back and looking at another, a previous episode, whether it's about mental health, leadership, fitness, and stuff like that. But the reason why I started this podcast was because of the last two years of pandemic and out of boredom and all this stuff, which all my viewers know. But when I start following people like yourself, um, John Anderson, these other fitness people um, with different backgrounds, male, female, whatever it is, I have found that particularly yours, it came at a time where a lot of times people were staying at home, right? The last two years trying to feel sorry for themselves or God forbid there were circumstances they couldn't get out and they couldn't work on their health and all this stuff. So for you, was there any sort of vindication where it's like, man, all the stuff I've been preaching and learning and trying to put out there that maybe I can start saving lives and maybe people can start following me, kind of pull what they can from the stuff I put out here. You know, it's an interesting point. It's something I've, I've taken, uh, I've thought about over the last couple of years, and I've, I've, it's really uh, caused me to, to change my position. I used to say that paying attention to your own physical fitness was important. Now I think it's critical to your life. We realize now that looking back on, on the, the, the countless people that we, we lost during the pandemic, the overwhelming majority of these folks were... The, the common denominator that we can't we have no control over is age. Aside from that, the folks that ha- that struggled the most with the coronavirus were, were those that were overweight and had various metabolic diseases, including type two diabetes and all kinds of other things that are related to being overweight and obese. So, with eighty percent of the population of the United States of the adult population of the United States is overweight. I'll repeat that 80%, right? And 43% are clinically obese. And so we're number one, right? Uh, I, I personally believe that the United States is, is uh, the greatest nation, uh, the most, uh, not only the most wealthy and powerful, but, but more importantly, perhaps the most innovative um, country on the planet. And yet we, as a, as a nation struggle mightily with controlling our weight, which is in direct uh, uh, positioning in how various diseases will affect our lives. And this was highlighted during the pandemic. You, in previous interviews, you've talked about your admiration for Dave Draper, uh, Lou Ferrigno, Franco Colombo, Arnold. Was when, before you, maybe we talk about before and during your NFL career, 
obviously you were hitting the weights and you're just a, you're just massive and but was the the actual the idea of fitness and health to you when did that finally click for you was this after your nfl career so um there's been an evolution in my thinking about physical fitness and i'd like to, i'd like to say that in, you know in my judgment that uh the if we were to look at physical fitness like a pyramid strength is the foundation of that strength means a lot of different things to a lot of people but I'll, I'll present it to you this way as we age strength is the ability to get off the toilet when you need to and i'm an i'm a trained emt and emts are emergency medical technicians uh, are commonly driving uh, an ambulance and the second most common reason the first most common reason that an ambulance when you see it driving down a street to someone's home the, the, the most common reason somebody picked up the phone and called 911 is because they had trouble breathing in, in a tight chest and chest pain. Number two is I can't get off the toilet. I can't get off the floor. It's mostly an, an elderly population, of course, but you can see at that intersection where these people are, have gotten heavy, probably because 80% of the adult population is overweight and they lost their strength. Why? Because they didn't pay attention to it. So one of the most fundamentally important exercises for anybody is to be able to squat. And I don't, as we get older, I don't, I'm not talking about putting a gigantic barbell on your back and going up and down. I'm just saying to have enough strength, core strength, leg strength, and mobility in your hips to hinge at the at the ankle, knee, and hip and go all the way down and get all the way up. How deep should you squat? Well, how far down is the toilet? You got to be able to get off that thing. And to do it, you need to be exercising throughout your life. And the foundation of that, the fundamental uh, part of that would be your strength training, cardiovascular, mobility training. All these things are wonderful and necessary, but they're a little bit further up uh, the, the, the food chain from uh, strength training. So I've reached that way of thinking. I'm 60. I've got my own dog in this hunt. And that is, I need to be able to get myself off a toilet for probably, I hope, uh, another 30 something years, 30, 40 years. I want the quality of my life, if I'm fortunate enough to live into old age, truly old age, I, I want that to be useful. I don't want to be old if I can't be functional, get off a toilet and do basic fundamental things. This is, so I've evolved thinking from my, the first time I ever lifted weights as a 14 year old was because I was uh, a good athlete and I had an inspiring uh, and, and positively minded coach in high school that said, hey, Pete, you know, because I was playing youth football since I was seven. And he said, you know, you have the potential to be really, really good at this because you got a couple things that we can't coach. And that is you're tall and I'm six, six now and I'm tall and I go, you're fast. And it just comes natural to you, but you're really skinny and you have no strength at all. And you need to find the weight room. And I did. I took that to heart. So I was a skinny kid in the basement reading the muscle magazines and it made an impression on me that allowed me and my dedication to strength training to parlay my ability. And now that I had gained some muscle and strength to um, to a, a, a scholarship to a division one school, the University of Maryland, played football there, captain of the team there. And from there, a first round draft pick into the NFL. So strength training was was a, a huge part of my development as a committed athlete. 
So early on, I got the messaging that it was important. I committed myself to that path, that discipline. And then, you know, and it served me well. Um, later on, when I got out of football, I needed a job. This is before the, you know, the guys made uh, millions of dollars. So I needed a job and I was doing a few different things and I was acting, but my passion was always, and I knew it, I needed like a, a regular job. Like my other actor friends were bartenders and waiters and those kinds of things. I had no interest in that. I wanted to be involved in fitness. So I began to get a more formal education certifications. I'm a certified strength and conditioning coach. I'm a certified level one CrossFit coach. I used to own a CrossFit box. So I've got you know, tons of, of that information. And as I aged, I began to evolve the way I thought about training myself and subsequently training the people that hire me. It is fascinating that as you get older yourself, you're adapting your training and philosophies. It's a really cool way of an actual in a real time, a case study of someone that's trying to you're helping someone now that's 58 in two years will be your age now and two years from now, they're going to look at what you're doing and hopefully be like, man, I could do this. And it's, there is something really to that where you can do something in real time. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's perfectly stated. And, and plus it, you know, the path that I've been on, which includes, listen, I, I played a, a brutal, brutal, physical, yeah. violent game for a long time. And along the way, I accrued a bunch of injuries, orthopedic injuries. So I've had seven, I think seven, eight orthopedic surgeries. So I've been through the ringer there, knee, lower back, neck, all the usual suspects. I've had to rehabilitate my own damaged shoulders. I'm going through some stuff right now with a neuropathy. I lost feeling in my right leg. Just uh, kind of luck of the draw there. Um, but I've had some surgery to, to try to correct that. So I'm in the healing process there. But these are real life experiences that have shaped the way that I think about the way I train myself, I should train and best practices to train other people moving forward with with a goal of superb lifespan or health span to be more exacting. And I like that word health span, you know, that's that intersection of a, of a long life, and a great health, right? Because what good is, is one without the other? Um, so that, that should be the goal. When should you start thinking about health span? Pretty early on. I mean, we, we're in a generation that, that every generation that you know, sort of graduates high school is heavier than the generation before it. And they need to be mindful of what they weigh, one's own body composition, because, you know, you only get one shot at this body to take you through life. You need to take care of it. I mean, literally, people, many people put much more thought, care and consideration into their car than they do their own chassis. Right. It is. Now, is this something where you when you talk about lifespan, the idea of prolonging one's life in a, in a healthy way, can someone that. Can someone jump on this bandwagon to say my age, 36, 37, and try and say, say I've partied and smoked and done all this stuff right to take care of my body and I want to prolong my lifespan? Am I able to jump on this idea or is this something that's kind of at the start at a young age? You know, absolutely. You can get started at, at any age and it's never too late. You know, one of my, my great uh, friends and I, I consider him like a, a He's not only my doctor, but he's like he's like a, a mentor. And sometimes we've collaborated. 
Um, and uh, that's uh, Dr. Robert Heisinger. He was the, the, the Dr. H uh, all those years on yes. the Biggest Loser reality show. And, and when I played with the Los Angeles Raiders back in the 80s, and that was Har Howie Long, Marcus Allen, and those guys, and Bo Jackson, that was he was the, the, the doctor for that team, internal medicine doc, and uh, perfectly trained to be a uh, sports medicine doc because he was, he was an All-American wrestler at Michigan before he went to Harvard Medical School. And over the years, we've talked a lot and we have a friendship and he's a, he's a workout nut, you know, and I'm a workout nut and we're workout nuts because we care about ourselves first. Um, and it's also a personal, it's a matter of a personal accountability. You know, if, if, if a, a huge percentage of the population aren't really paying attention to their own health we need to all be our own health advocate and fitness physical fitness is a huge part of that so if you're taking care of yourself if you're if you're thinking about you know our society as a whole like the sicker everybody is the heavier everybody is the sicker we are as a society it's a drain it's a huge drain on on resources in this country so a take care of yourself for a whole bunch of reasons yourself first but as if you care at all about the society that you're a part of, it's an important consideration. And one thing that Dr. Heising has, has, has told me over the years, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm good at staying in my lane as a, as a fitness guy. And then when I'm talking to a medical doctor, who's also a great advocate for, for physical fitness and leads from the front, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a beautiful, uh, you know, person to have in my life. And he says, you know, the human body is incredibly resilient. We can do a lot of harm to it and kind of get away with it. Um, but we need to be alert to the things that we do chronically. Um, easily the, the most damaging, you know, uh, self-inflicted wound uh, that, that's that anybody could do to their body that's, you know, sort of common still although it's almost going away is uh, smoking, right? Right. So number one, just don't smoke. It's still, I think it's 15% of the population or something still smokes, but, but the best practice is don't smoke. But then you can kind of, kind of work your way down the line. Things to avoid uh, doing in your life um, is gonna in, enhance your life and, and give you a better chance to live longer. But then there's the things you can do proactively, and that is to go out there and exercise. And I do understand that exercise is a is a very broad term, and it means a lot of different things. But if people want just would just embrace on some level chronically, you know, go to a place or whether it's a gym or you build a home gym or however you want to go about doing, find a park and do calisthenics but work on keeping your, your, your body strong, work on, on strengthening your cardiovascular system. That's that intersection of where your heart and lungs are working together. And, uh, you know, you're going to be the better person for it. It's never too late to start. Our bodies are resilient. And even if you're a senior and you, and, and you're just kind of getting the messaging that, you know, it does happen that way. Sometimes people wake up one day and they go, wow, I might, you know, I'm, I might be 70 something. And I, and I think I might live another shoot. I might live another 15 years. It's going to be, it's going to be a very poor quality of life unless I change something. Some people get the message then it's better late than never. 
it is. I do find it because a lot of times people always have that deathbed, deathbed wish of regret, or I wish I did this, or I wish I made a better decision that could have impacted my life now. But as you talked about the idea of expanding one's longevity of life and maybe changing, making changing mistakes and kind of trying to sort some out, some make some stuff better. The idea of death and as you get older, you, you, you physically start doing less and less, but with your idea and your belief system, were you ever at any time in your life kind of afraid of getting older that you as Pete can't do what you're doing now next year or tomorrow is for people that have that fear of getting older. What do you say to them? Do something about it. I mean, to, to answer your first question is no, I don't, I have, I have no fear of getting older. I have fear. I have, I really don't use the word fear. I, I, I have a legitimate um, thought in my head about how the quality of my life can be diminished right. if I'm if I don't take care of my business now. And I'm I have no intention, you know, on stopping. I posted recently an interview on social media, just a very short, you know, fifty seconds, talking to the uh, a man that inspires me. And his name is Chuck Mahoney, and he's a friend of mine and that I know from the gym. You know, that that's where my tribe is at my gym. And and I know it's a blessing for me. And if you can find a gym, by the way, um, and, and whatever kind of gym that might be, it might be your thing might be Pilates and it might be hot yoga. But if you can find a place and your that's where your tribe is, um, preferably a place where the people are social and it's you know, whether you do group exercise, we've got a coach um, or boot camp style training or CrossFit. There's lots of ways to go about that or just a general fitness gym like where I go. But that's my tribe. And uh, and Chuck Mahoney's 89 years old and he's at the gym five that's days awesome. a week and he's doing the same stuff I'm doing, maybe a little bit lighter weight, but uh, he's lifting the weights and he's doing the cardio. He's also um, staying very, very active. Chuck Mahoney um, was Arnold Schwarzenegger's first training partner when Arnold moved to the United States from Austria. Uh, I think it was 1966 or something like that. Right. And so I think Arnold is 70. I see Arnold at the gym all the time. But um, uh, I think Arnold is 74. Chuck's 89, 15 years older. So Joe Weider. Uh, of the fame of the, the Weeder magazines, which are, I guess, all online now, but the, built the Weeder empire. And Joe Weeder financed uh, and helped Arnold come to the United States. And, and the first person he introduced him to was his other, another friend, um, Chuck Mahoney, who owned a gym in LA. And he wanted, and Chuck was an amateur bodybuilder, very strong. And, 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 and Weider put them together because he wanted Arnold to have not only a friend and a great training partner and someone that was at his level of strength, but also someone that was older and, and that he could, he could count on and trust. Um, and, and all these years later, it is so great to see when, when Arnold walks in and Chuck is standing there and Arnold comes right over to Chuck and he says, how are you, my friend, you know, and uh, sometimes the three of us talk and that, I can, Arnold inspires me, right? So he's 14 years older than me. Chuck's 19 or, I'm sorry, uh, 29 years older than me. 
And, um, and then of course the rest of the gym, you've got, you know, all the way down yeah. to 17 year olds, you know, working out. So that's, that keeps me engaged and that's, um, that's a blessing for me, but I encourage everybody to, to in some way, try to find that. And if it's, it, it's not always easy to do, but, or find some people on social media that inspire you. I love that you could work with another college athlete or a professional athlete or an actor like Benicio Del Toro or an 80 year old grandmother, the idea of these different people and how you're able to interact and they're all looking, searching for the same thing. And I find that really cool. Um, so I guess my question is when you come across someone that wants to, Hey, I need Pete, I need help. I need you to coach me. If they lack motivation, um, is that something you could help instill in them or do you have to kind of sit them down and be like, Hey, you need to do this for yourself first. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, and I've been approached over the last few years by a number of uh, parents, dads of teenage kids that like, they'll say, Hey, you know, I got this kid. I wonder if you could coach my kid. He's 16, 17. And he, I think he's got potential as an athlete, but this blah, 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 but, but he doesn't want to do the work. And I think that's, um, I, I, he needs to want to do the work. There needs to be some internal drive and like, and why I usually say, you know, I, I, why doesn't your, your, your kid have that internal drive? I mean, if, when I was that age and you said, um, I need you to uh, run through that brick wall over there, I'd say, okay, if that's going to make me better, you know, if that's going to make right. me a better defensive end, you got it. You know, like if it was someone I trusted and I didn't, I just was, I just was a sponge to learn. I just wanted to, um, when I was 17, I saved my little bit of allowance and a little bit of uh, pumping gas money you know, that I had I'd cobbled together and I joined, uh, we had a weight room in the high school and it was, wasn't good at all. And I knew the strength training thing was so important to me. And I've been learning from the magazines that, you know, they had these machines called lat pull downs and I was dying to use that machine. And um, I joined a bodybuilding gym that was about six miles away. And I had a I didn't even have a car. I had to wrangle up a friend or my mother or somebody to take me to the, to the gym. But once I got there, I was around bodybuilders, like men that were building their bodies. And I was, I was in heaven. It was a converted uh, uh, um, A&P food market, you know, and like you walked in and the doors went, opened up like uh, it was an old uh, 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 food, food store. So it was, it was converted into a bodybuilding gym. It was just crazy. Like you wouldn't see anything like this today. It was so old school, but this was the late seventies. So I was so internally motivated that I was out there trying to figure it out, like how to get stronger, bigger. How do I get around these people? How do I, then I wanted to learn from everybody. Um, and then I, and then the, the next logical, you know, opportunity and progression was for me to uh, do the same thing, go to the next level at, in college. And the strength and conditioning coach at the University of Maryland is one of the reasons I chose to, to go to that school because he was a very impressive guy named Frank Costello who would, had, a, had really, was really developing, you know, because it sounds counterintuitive unless you really understand it, but the stronger 
and more muscular you get as an athlete at any position, uh, the faster you get, the faster, you know, you can open up the ceiling on your, on your power, your explosiveness, your quickness. And that's what I wanted. I wanted all of that. I learned about it. And, and my whole life I've been seeking and curious about best practices for whatever I'm trying to do. The way I trained as an athlete when I was 20 and the way I trained as a retired athlete and just a, just a guy, a, a, you know, an actor and, and um, a fitness coach, the way I do at 60, they're quite different. Uh, they, they share the foundations. You know, it was Bruce Lee who said, um, uh, principles are few, methods are many. So the principles are, hey, what am I going to do? How can I exercise? Here's what I got here. We and you, we all have the same thing. 206 skeletal bones, 360 joints, and 646 skeletal muscles that pull the bones around the joints. All of it's controlled by the central nervous system, your brain and spinal cord. There you go. Let's train it. You... Some of my favorite memories growing up are either my parents or the coaches of different various sports, whether it's lacrosse, hockey, and the the way of living your life through the sport or taking what you learn from sport into the real world. Stuff that's always stayed with me about teamwork and dedication and motivation. And recently on LinkedIn, you made this awesome post about the the idea of yes you're a coach, but the respect you have towards your coach Wayne Herring, and this idea that coaches can have coaches in the importance of a coach. And I found it so fascinating that someone like you who on the outside looking in, you'd be like, well, he knows what he's talking about. Like, why does he need to go to a coach? And the fact you openly say you still need your coach in life, it, it's, there's something really powerful to that. And I, and I feel bad for people that never had those experiences through their youth as a coach that had an impact on their lives. And those people today that, so what if you're 40, you could still, you don't need a fitness coach. Maybe you need a life coach. Maybe you just need to talk to someone that could coach you through something they went through before. And if I, if you could kind of touch upon the importance of coaching in your life, I think there's something really vital to that. Yeah, that's, I appreciate that. It wasn't, I didn't get the, I got the messaging about the, the potential of coaches very early on. Right. Cause my, I was a, that, that skinny, uh, energetic, you know, kid running all over the place. And so my dad just signed me up, you know, it was um, football, youth football in, in the fall and then basketball in the winter. And then it was uh, baseball in the spring, repeat, <laughs> rinse right. and repeat. And I, I just, uh, and I, and I was blessedly exposed to um, my high school football team, New Hyde Park Memorial on Long Island, Long Island had uh, uh, had nothing to do with it, but it had, you know, I was fortunate enough. We had two great coaches, two great men uh, that coached the, the, the varsity and some excellent coaches in, on the JV too, but they were like co-head coaches, John Kahlo and a guy we call Mr. G. And uh, they, um, they built a dynasty out of a bunch of blue collar kids in a little town on Long Island. And I was a, I was a little cog, you know, in that. Uh, and I am forever grateful, you know, that I had that sort of mentorship. I, I, I wasn't getting any sort of quality mentorship from my own father. So I was, I was really in need 
of some guidance. And I got it. That's where I got it from, in particular, these two men in high school. Uh, without them, I'm a, I'm a train wreck. Uh, I don't know where in the hell I'm going with my life. But what I ended up going was um, a, a, I had a barely a passable GPA. I was scatterbrained, ADD, and all over the place. But my anchor to reality was football and the discipline that I got from my coaches that got me to the next level division one. And, and all of a sudden I, I saw the light. I saw that I had the, the potential, you know, to be really good at this game. And um, so coaching when done right, God, it's one of the great, the great blessings in life because it can fill in the gaps. Everybody's got gaps in their game. Um, and my coach, Wayne Herring, as you pointed out, he's pointed out and helped me identify beautifully, uh, eloquently, um, where I can be a better businessman. Uh, and what that allows me to do, the better I am as a businessman, the more people I can help. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do as a, as a fitness coach is help people. There's a lot of people in need. Um, whether they know it or not, or, you know, but I'm, uh, I'm trying to spread the word and help people and the better businessman I can be, uh, the better that is for me and my bottom line and the better it is for the folks that I help. I think it's to your point. I think there is a, there's something taboo about the idea of a man asking someone, asking someone for help. And there's like this idea of, oh, uh, my masculinity is going to be wounded. And it's, I found that the people I've resonated with at the times I've needed help, whether it's going through divorce or issues at home or work issues, the minute you ask for help, it feels like you've already kind of, you've already kind of, you've already got the help you need. And that way of the shoulder coming off there, the idea of don't be ashamed to ask for help or talk to your coach. Cause I, again, it's, it's such a cool thing to have that connection with someone that's outside, say your parents or your family or someone that's willing to look you in the face and say, Hey, you messed up. And I think that's super vital. Hey, I agree. You know, that, that I, actually what you, you make me think of that is um, before I ever had, you know, Wayne in my life coaching me, I had therapists and they were in, and I remember, I think the first time I went to see a psychologist, it was about dealing with, I was racked with uh, anxiety, general anxiety and social anxiety, which sounds funny. You go, what? This guy's right. played in the NFL right. and he was a, uh, you know, he's an actor and, and I've done this kind of stuff, but I, it, I'm not saying I, I couldn't get it under control, but when you, when you have, when you when you're a very anxious person and you're su you're suffering and all you spend your whole life like trying to hide it and you also spend your whole life avoiding social situations which is what i did for 25 years but i went to seek some professional help uh and i was in my 30s late 30s that was the first time and i was um and i had it sounds cliche but to talk to somebody like you're paying money to talk to somebody who's who's going to do two things but the first thing you figure out they're going to do is they won't judge you right and that's that's worth paying for because even though your best friends will tell you say tell me anything i'll tell i, I won't judge right. you yeah they can't help it right they can't help it right they're your friend <laughs> and then the second thing is on top of 
listening and not judging, they actually have some feedback that's meaningful, you know, the good ones. I mean, they, you know, they went to college for a long time, you know, and got a PhD. Like this guy was, this guy had awesome. He's like, I can help you. And like, I go, huh? And he, he just, and then we got into some behavioral techniques and, and whatever. And uh, he was very helpful. So there's, it's, it's such a blessing to, to get with a great coach. In the world. And I've always, I've always tried to kind of stay, you see like the ads for GNC or vitamin shop. And I'm always looking for that next power bar or something where it's like, I don't know what half the ingredients are. I think it intimidates me. Um, so one of our listeners, Lori, that she's always sends a great questions was wondering for people that are trying to find that right balance of diet and snacking and eating and fitness. When you go by a place like GNC or you see an ad or this new greed, uh, greed, uh, vegetable stuff they've got everywhere now, when you see stuff like that, what's the first step someone should do before they engage in that product? Like, is there a, like, how would you kind of motivate someone to kind of, Hey, maybe try, try this but don't do this and vice versa. All right. So you, this is pro tip stuff right here. Um, two, two things really come to mind. Number one, as a rule, when you walk into that vitamin store, 90% of what is on the shelves is of no value. I, I'm, I, right. That's just my position. And I might be under, <laughs> might be overvaluing that 10%. Uh, but mostly not, I'm not a big supplement guy, but I also take supplement personally with vitamin D not because I'm guessing because I, my doctor and I, we do the blood work. So I know where I stand and it is kind of interesting. I live in Los Angeles, one of the sunniest places on planet earth. I got a big dog and I walk her, you know, for 90 minutes a day, um, outside all the time. And I was still low in vitamin D when I first, I first really became alerted to this through a blood test about 10 years ago. And if you're low in vitamin D, not only is it not good for the way your body's functioning, it can have an effect on your mood. And if you're someone like me who struggles with a little bit of depression, boy, you're just, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice if your vitamin D is low. So about my understanding is about 70% of Americans um, are low and deficient in some level of vitamin D. I think that would be important to know. And that's a blood test. Uh, it's, it's, it's oil soluble. So you can take too much, unlike C and B, which are water soluble. You, you don't, you can't take too much. You just urinate it away. But so vitamin D, um, which actually isn't a vitamin, it's a hormone anyway. So I, I think D is and, um, but it, it's, it's an important thing, but so, so there's, there's a legitimate, you know, um, supplementation, but most of the stuff, not so much. There is a website that I would recommend people to, um, uh, pros like myself use it. It's called examine.com and you, it's got a search tool. It, it they, they take no sponsor dollars and you can type in any supplement from creatine, to any sort of ergogenic aid, like coffee caffeine type it in and it'll bring up a whole it's like a like bring up a whole bunch of studies it's like a um it's like a massive database i think there's a free i think there's a paid version and a free version but you might want to just check that out it's a it's a a nice resource examine.com as you 
kind of switch it down to the acting part of your life as you transition from the NFL into acting and the the role the role of Swede in Heartbreak Ridge I mean for me growing up I, I love all things Clint Eastwood um whether it's the westerns and the crime and what a dead day uh Harry um Dirty Harry that, Dirty Harry. For Dirty Harry time. was the one. That was the first movie that grabbed me. I, when I, I think that I was, I think I was fifteen when that movie came out. I was like, "Whoa!" So like, for you to bad. have that reaction, to Dirty Harry, and then here you are working. Not only is he behind the camera directing you, he's also acting alongside you. That dynamic where, and you've talked before about, the, the, obviously there isn't a lot of actors, directors out there that can do both sides at that level. He does, and so for you to that first interaction with him on scene and behind the camera, what was that kind of like? Boy, you know, that's a good question. So I was, I was a, a, you know, really kind of a newbie actor at the point that I was cast in Heartbreak Ridge. And um, so I'd worked on uh, several commercials and television shows and um, I think one or two other films. And it was all done right in a traditional way. You, You got a director over there and, and then you got the actors on the other side of the camera. And then I got, I got on the set and the first scene that I'm in, uh, Clint is dressed like the role that he's acting. He's in Gunny's Highway, you know, yep. camos. And uh, he's directing, you know, he's not in the scene. And I thought that's kind of interesting. And I just, my first, connection was all right and i'm just paying attention to him as any actor would a director and then shortly after that we're we're in a scene together and it's interesting so here's here is his process at least um that i know that it's they really rely on the first ad that's your first assistant director the first assistant director is the clearly i mean clearly the most important organizational job on on a big movie set creatively that director of photography that cinematographer names two names for the same job um that's a critically important job but it's also very intimate you never you might never even talk to the cinematographer uh in the five weeks i worked on um Heartbreak Ridge, I don't think I had any words with him, but the the first AD, everybody gets to know. And it's really important. So Clint relies heavily on the first AD to what? Do a couple things that he can't do when he's in front of the camera, and that's to start and finish the action. Uh, And and, and whether it's, you know, action and cut, that kind of a thing. Um, And it was... It was it was interesting to kind of compare and contrast uh, the the first AD on Heartbreak Ridge was Paul Moen and and his personality versus Clint's. So Clint would have to do all the all the direction, tell the actors what he wanted. If there was a rehearsal, run the rehearsal, then get in front of the camera. It's incredibly demanding. There's it, it makes perfect sense that nobody would want to do both. I mean, you got guys like George Clooney. He'll star in a movie. And then he directs the movie and then he stars in the movie. And then he kind of, there's a few guys like that. That makes sense to me uh, to tackle both at the same time. It's, it's, it's no surprise that he's about Kevin Costner's done it like a couple of times, but they, nobody sticks with it. 
Um, it's incredibly difficult. And the fact that Clint is still doing it, uh, there was a block of time, I think, in the in the in the 2000s where Clint made, I think, three movies in a row that he just directed all of them. And he was almost semi retired from acting. But now he's back to doing both. It's incredible. The interactions between yourself and Mario Van Peebles character and Clint and and the cast itself was perfectly blended together. Was someone playing a character of Swede with your size and what the role entailed, how much direction was really given to you in terms of how to play this character? Because it seemed like you were, yes, you look, obviously you looked apart. There's no CGI. You are that big of a man. But you were, did you always have that type of swagger and confidence to play a character like that? Because it seemed like for, for a movie, this, for a role to come, happen like this for you, to be in front of Clint Eastwood, it seemed it, that seems like it would intimidate most people. I don't care how big you are. If you'd actually, it just seems so real and refreshing. And still to this day, it holds up in the part where you, as they talk about the Swede before you even introduced, you're like, holy shit, this guy is, this is the real deal. Yeah. You know, there's, there's about 30 minutes of hype. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait Swede gets out of the brig, you know, uh, the movie's two hours long swede doesn't appear until an hour you know into the movie but you've been hearing about him for 30 40 minutes so it's it's kind of fun uh, so that that that's that that uh, entrance needed to be meaningful and, I, and i'll tell you mario van peebles who played uh, stitch jones was, was instrumental i i, I kind of like to make sure i give him the credit um so um a short story short is as we're rehearsing the scene in this Quonset hut, uh, we shot that at Camp Pendleton down in San Diego. It was supposed to be Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, but we fudged that and we shot it all in, in California. And, um, and uh, so the camera was set at like um, my eye level. And then, uh, and, and they, the, the guys are chanting sweet, sweet, sweet. And then I, I come, come around from, you know, and I just sort of appear and I walk into the, the camera, walk towards the camera. And uh, this is a rehearsal that we did and catch. So the, just picture the camera like that. And then uh, Clint says, oh, that, you know, that looks fine. Let's shoot that. And then Mario says very discreetly, very professionally, he says to, Clint, I, I got an idea. I said, an idea. Uh, I think we had shot one just like that. And Clint only likes to do like two takes. So Which is awesome. I think he, I think the, so, so Mario says, what if we took the camera down and that way when you, when, and, and then we could maybe, and the, and the camera would come up like this and, Clint says, I, I was just, I was just, this was all just four feet away from me. And I'm like, huh? And then Clint goes, yeah, it sounds good. Let's try one like that. Hold on. So it, had, it took a few minutes because you got to reset the, the camera. And uh, so they go ahead and quick do that. And then, all right, let's do it again. And then Clint doesn't even say action. He says, he'll say something like, go ahead. You know, and he, uh, and then so we do it again, sweet, sweet, sweet. Like, and there, there's that shot. We did it once. And Clint looked at the cinematographer and they look, oh, that look good. Great. Moving on. I mean, so we move on to the next shot. But I have like, I, if 
just the picture the next time you see the scene picture it static it would be fine yeah. but how much more powerful it was due to mario van peebles and mario is not only a, a, a terrific actor but for many many years now he's a he's a very very in-demand uh director and he, he had he had that eye he knew um he saw that and it was it was and i thank him to pieces for it it in a previous interview, I can't, I'll, I'll post a link once this airs, but you talked about when Clint Eastwood first meets you, he comes up to you, introduces himself, and you talk about the impact it had in your life in the terms of the idea of leadership and what a leadership should be. When events like that happen, whether it's Clint coming to you or your coach, Wayne, or stuff like that, when little things happen like that, you make note of it. And those type of interactions and actions towards you do you kind of harvest them inside you and then project them out that way? Because you, with something that happens, he didn't have to come up to you. He could have treated you like actor number, whatever. And I'm Clint Eastwood. I don't, I don't care. But the fact he would have his way to do that in that type of leadership or Wade coaching you the way he does, how much of different interactions with people towards you, do you kind of take in and kind of project out? Yeah. So just a, a quick uh, recap of how, what happened was, so um, I was, living in LA. This was in the off season. I made this film. I was playing for the Kansas city chiefs living in LA in the off season doing pursuing acting. And the first day, um, so I had five worked five weeks. My role required five weeks. And one of those weeks we were in, uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, but, uh, the other four weeks were in at, at camp Pendleton and the first day to work, they, they, the production had called me, my agent and I and said, uh, we want you to get down to San Diego at the, and so check into this hotel the day before sleep there. And then you're going to have an early start in the morning. So I drove down and I got there in the afternoon. And once I got to this at the hotel, there was uh, somebody met me there, uh, a, a production assistant and said, Hey, listen, they told me to take, to bring you over to the set. So we're going to drive and it's, you know, 15 minutes away over there on uh, Camp Lejeune. So we drive over there and it was a, this was the middle of the summer we were shooting this stuff beautiful hot day and then they drive and then there's they're shooting a scene and i'm on a little bit of a rise above on this hill where we're watching and just there's really no spectators right so you got the crew down there and it was just a couple of us standing here and now you can see about 100 feet away there's clint and a group of actors and a crew and they're shooting a scene and um just watching and, and uh so they, but they wanted me there. So I thought, this is cool. I'm just going to watch this. And, um, and then it was a, a cut and a break in the action and Clint sees me. And all of a sudden I realized he's walking towards me, you know, it was about a hundred feet and I'm like, oh, wow. And then he comes over and he puts his hand out and goes, Hey Pete, I'm so glad you could, you can make it here. This is going to be really good. We're going to have some fun. It's going to be a good shoot. And, and I, and a, wow. You know, he just wanted me to be, that was him that told them to, to bring me over. He wanted to, he knows that people have nerves around him, especially I was 23, right. a young actor and, uh, he, and, and a couple of things. And I think he also, he could have easily like, you know, waved me over, but I, in thinking on it over these years, I thought, you know, if I go over there, if he's standing there, he's the director, he's the star, he's the producer. All he does is answer questions and put out, fires and solve problems and all that stuff so he what does he do he takes himself away from that for a moment so he and i can connect on a personal 
basis. Just it's a moment, but think of all that went into it. Right. And, and I'm forever grateful that he just took that 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 couple of three, five minutes to walk over to me and um, set the tone. Uh, Invaluable yeah, lesson. It, it is awesome. And so one of our again, one of our listeners, Kim, was wondering, and maybe you can talk about other roles too, whether it's the fire captain conspiracy theory, which is another great movie. But in terms of training for playing a character like the Swede, outside the physical aspect of it, when it comes to the if people haven't seen it, the Marine Corps, it's based on military. Um, what any sort of training that goes into these roles, whether it is for a movie, The Carpet Ridge, or another movie or a TV show, like how much more work do you put in there in terms of making a certain character believable in the, in the world they're being presented in? You know, uh, Heartbreak Ridge, I think uh, the, 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 the technical training that we got on that film was, was cleverly built in because the, uh, we were part of a unit of recon Marines. And there was, uh, aside from Stitch Jones, there was Keone's and yes. uh, uh, Lieutenant Ring. And there was a handful, they were all actors. And, and then there was another five or six guys running around us uh part of us that were the real deal and they didn't have any lines but they were the real guys so in between takes and we spent long days together uh when it came to how do i hold my weapon correctly how would i move you know through the jungle you know uh, in a in a in a correct uh uh recon marine fashion they were our technical advisors we had a a a distinct technical advisor overall who was great and a weapons a team of weapons experts but we also had uh, those guys to help us uh, to be the best version you know active actor marine uh, recon as we could be not you don't always have that opportunity um and there's many different roles um the that i've you know, the, I think I had, I think my training in the NFL and, 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 and training camp and, and the physicality of all that served me well for uh, the role of, of Swede. You know, there was hundreds right. of guys that were up for the role. When I first auditioned, I, I, uh, they didn't release the name of the film or who was starring in it. My agent just said, drive over to the Warner Brothers lot, be there at 2.30. And I had three pages of of the script called sides and i had a few lines on there and i walk into a, this building uh it's a this casting you know building and there's a, a lobby and there's 40 guys and i was at 66 285 i was average sized <laughs> the guys were between you know 63 and 69 uh, between 260 and 320, like pro wrestlers, college football players, every bald guys, long haired guys, every, every single. And then I, after I did my audition, I'm walking off the lot and there's a stream of gigantic guys, you know, heading their way. I mean, it was just hundreds and hundreds. The script read six, seven, 280. I'm six, six at the time, 290. That was that was pretty close, but um, there was every big guy in Hollywood and New York was auditioned for that role. Um, so, uh, but I do think I think that my 
my mindset that I, that I brought to the role, which has been crafted in part by years of the discipline of football and strength training, I think it, it, it shaped my performance. Love that. Um, before I let you go, um, I do want to say if anyone wants to check out the social media, please let them know, uh, Pete, where they can go. Talk about your store, talk about any projects you're coming up. And if people want to reach out to you, especially in the California area that need coaching of some sort, like how could they reach out to you and uh, get in touch with you? Oh, thanks. So I'm easy to get hold of, you know, Pete Koch, P-E-T-E-K-O-C-H. That's Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn is a popular spot. And I pretty much um, post the same sorts of things. Um, any, any place you might find me on social media. Uh, some years ago, I decided, about four years ago, I decided that I was going to offer free um, fitness tips. And it's mostly exercise, mostly strength training, but sometimes stretching and stuff. They're, they're 30 seconds, approximately 30 second videos. I call it making you better 30 seconds at a time. If you can just manage to, to clear out 30 seconds um, to watch me maybe perform an exercise or describe it, maybe describe the benefit of it. You know, some years ago, I read a quote that uh, Albert Einstein said, uh, aspire not to be a man, so much a man of wealth, but rather a man of value. And I thought, well, I have all this information, all this knowledge and all this experience in my head about physical fitness. I know that this country's in trouble. We talked about this. A lot of people overweight, don't feel good at all. And how can I be a man of value? I can, I can share some of this information for free. And I think that's good. And it's, and it's, it's, it's very well received. And if that makes any sense to you, I don't coach anybody uh, with a couple exceptions. It, it, I don't really do any in-person coaching anymore, but I coach people uh, virtually. And I think quite effectively, mostly by writing. These are for people that know how to work out, you know, at least at an intermediate level, but they're looking for guidance in terms of their programming to their strength training, cardiovascular exercise, how they can, um, eat better and see the results that are you know, difficult for people sometimes to achieve. So I'm like an executive fitness coach in that way. Um, and I love to connect with people. So if you have a question or if you hit me up and DM me, I'm, I'm glad to respond. I love that. Uh, Pete, this has been awesome. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your uh, dedication to your craft and uh, I look forward to uh, many more of these down the road. Yeah, I appreciate you. I love Spear Talk. I appreciate your time today. My pleasure. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the Chop Fit. Over the course of the past year, the Chop Fit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourselves as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SpearChop10 for $10 off your Chop Fit order. It'll change your life. Thank you.
Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Kits. I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we, we the perfect, perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on, on the Dean Blundell, Blundell Network. Network. Or on our YouTube channel. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Because, because democracy, democracy is, is something, something you do. do.